1: Our guest tonight is a trained academic historian who worked for 10 years at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. His well-regarded first book analyzed the Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939. His latest work is something altogether different. It's called Six Days in September, a novel of Lee's army in Maryland, 1862. What brought this author from the Second World War to the Civil War? And why turn from writing academic history to fiction? We'll ask Alexander B. Rossino these questions and more tonight on Civil War
0: Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio back in the saddle after a long winter's break it's the second show of the new year 2019 uh, enjoying the new sights and sounds around campus a new parking deck is opened after years of construction which took up the old parking lot uh, hopefully things will be a little easier to uh, to park on campus these days the new student center is opened although uh, I uh, learned this week that all the interior windows of the building need to be replaced. They're not up to spec, and the ECU administration is holding the line and making the builder replace them all. Having just had work done on our kitchen at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road, my wife and I are familiar with the importance of making sure contractors do everything they say they will. Ours is very good, by the way. Uh there are always slippages, so it's good to see that the uh, administration here is going to make sure that they put in the proper windows and the building will not do whatever it would otherwise do with overly thin windows. The season continues here. Uh, the The uh, football season is, is now over, thankfully, uh, for all Concerned, the basketball season is upon us. I'm a shameless front runner where that goes. Don't pay attention unless my teams are doing well. But my alma mater, Michigan, couldn't be doing better at 17 and 0. What's really exciting, though, are the Pirates here at East Carolina. They are only 500. They're getting beat by other teams in the league. But they've already pulled one big upset, and the games that they have lost have still been competitive. Unlike past years, where you could go home at halftime, knowing there was nothing more to see, uh, they're fun to watch. Uh, it, it promises to be a good season here on campus. The Civil War season continues. There will be a number of good shows in the weeks ahead. Or at least, I, uh, if they're as good as the books, there'll be very good shows next week. Janet Croon will be with us. She's the editor of The War Outside My Window, the Civil War Diary of Leroy Wiley Gresham, 1860 to 1865, about a young man uh, who reports on the war in a unique fashion. The book got a lot of good press when it came out. We originally had her scheduled for last fall, and she was so busy with her book tours, we had to reschedule it for uh, for next week january 23rd of 2019 then we'll have a book about the uss monitor called our little monitor the greatest invention of the civil war it's by anna holloway and jonathan white uh and it's uh, uh anna holloway will be our guest jonathan white has been on the show before so he's going to step aside and let his co-author have a turn And then we get to February, Aaron Sheehan-Dean, who's also been on before, will be back with his brand new book, The Calculus of Violence, How Americans Fought the Civil War. And then we will celebrate Lincoln's birthday, which, of course, is February 12th. We'll be back on February 13th, a Wednesday as always. And I'll be talking with my old friend from the Lincoln world, Dan Weinberg, the proprietor of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago. And we'll... We'll just talk about whatever Lincoln things come up. It'll be good to be in touch with Dan again and hear about uh, the book Business as it relates to the Civil War era. Uh, The remainder of the month, Caroline Janey will be here uh, editing a new volume of essays on the end of the war in Virginia, Petersburg to Appomattox. And finally, Andrew Delbanco, who has... Just written, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War. It's a book that is also getting a lot of national attention, and we're glad to have him coming to Civil War Talk Radio. In the spring, I'll be touring battlefields, as always, with the uh, This Hallowed Ground Tour, May 18-26. to Check out StephenAmbroseTours.com and reserve yourself a place. It's always fun to do that. If you can't do that, or even if you can, make it a full summer, come to the Gettysburg College Civil War Institute. That is from June 14 through 19. Uh, These are both, as they are every week, unsolicited announcements. I've toyed with the idea of having uh, advertising on the show, but it turns it more into a job than than it ought to be. Uh, so when I tell you about these things, it's not because they are paying me, other than indirectly, to participate uh, as the the uh, the tour guide will say for uh, this hallowed ground, uh, but because I think they're they're really interesting and fun, and I think you'd enjoy them. You can find out always what's going on at the Facebook page, uh, Impediments of War, or the website of the same name, where Mark Gaffney posts uh, messages about each show as they come up and tells you what's going to be on next. Always good to see that. Last night here on campus, I went to a lecture by a political science professor. He was talking about extremist and populist movements in Europe. Uh, The professor is also the dean of the college, so all the department chairs and the associated assistant deans were there, knowing uh, which side they're bread is buttered on, and uh, I went being interested in the topic, actually, and among other things, I saw the associate dean for planning, the numbers guy in the department, the uh, the nemesis of the history department, uh, because he, he tends to count everything but measure nothing, and that's not good for, for history. Uh, if he were reviewing tonight's book, this is how it would go. Six days in September... It's only 86% as good as the political thriller Seven Days in May, but it is 20% better than John Lukash's Five Days in London. It's six times better than Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, but only six-tenths of a percent as good as Schlesinger's A Thousand Days. I've not read any of these books and don't know what they're about, but my numbers are incontrovertible. Well, fortunately, that's not my review. I plan to take a more holistic approach to tonight's book, which I have, in fact, read. It is a novel by Dr. Alexander B. Rossino, who joins us now. Uh, Alex, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Uh, Welcome to the show. So uh, uh, yes, the the review will not be strictly on numerical title points, but rather we'll we'll talk more generally about the whole thing. Um, let me start by asking a bit about your own background. I said something about uh, you being a trained historian in the introduction. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, about your background. Yeah, sure. Um,
3: I know I'm a bit of an outlier for your show and for um, the field in general. Uh, I got my Ph.D. at Syracuse University in 1999 um, after working on it for a good seven years. Um, worked on a, uh, or published a dissertation on uh, the Nazi invasion of Poland. Because uh, I worked at the Holocaust Museum, I had access to all these records that uh, had already been brought over overseas for me, so it was easy to, you know, easy to use. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was there until 2003, and uh, then decided I wanted to... Uh, work in a different field. Um, it was a little bit too emotionally draining. You know, it's a difficult topic working on perpetrators mm-hmm. and the Holocaust. Um, and so I decided I wanted to work in a different field and uh, completely left history for a long time, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. didn't do any kind of work, whether it was fiction writing or other, or, you know, or historical writing, um, and now uh, I'm actually in the private sector uh, working as a business intelligence analyst, so, um, <laughs> but I haven't lost my history love, you know, my love of it, so uh, I do a little dabbling in both.
2: <laughs> well,
1: that, that's a very interesting story. So many people who write Civil War history do have uh, you know, different career paths, not just straight uh, undergrad, grad school at a university, uh, a lot of people have done different things or do different things. I took a look at your book, uh, Hitler Strikes Poland, uh, after reading uh, Six Days in September just out of curiosity, and yeah. I, I I fully understand your comment about how, how draining it is to study a subject like that. Uh, mm-hmm. The Civil War and its bloodshed and, and of course, human slavery are, are traumatic enough, but uh, one has to have a strong stomach to uh to spend too much time in the 20th century, is that what brought you back to to the Civil War era? Um, well, what
3: actually brought me back was um, love of the subject from childhood. So I think, like most of the people I've heard on your show, uh, the gateway for me was you know Bruce Catton's American Heritage Picture uh, yes. History of the Civil War. Um, my grandfather uh, showed that book to me. I think it's the first book I can really remember looking at when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. um, he showed that to me. It was he didn't have a lot of books, but that was one of them that he had. And uh, he used to, uh, we used to flip through and you know look at the pictures of the sunset with behind the cannons, and then the beautiful mm-hmm. maps that are really works of art rather than maps on in it. And it yeah. really just uh, got grabbed me from there. And I've always been a Civil War buff, and have continued reading you know, reading in the field, um, <laughs> even though I wasn't, I wasn't active in it from, from you know, the, my teenage years.
1: So, the, uh, that book is the one, uh, uh, absolutely more than any other one, that, that got so many of us uh, interested when we were young, and, uh, and I think still has that effect. So, uh, the next obvious question is, why, why choose fiction as your medium to, uh, to tell a Civil War story? Yeah, sure. Um well, you know,
3: the idea actually is a um an evolution of well, the book is an evolution of an idea that I actually had in the 1990s when I was doing my my background work for Hitler Strikes Poland. Um because my approach to that book, you may have noticed, is um personal profiles of some individuals that participated mm-hmm. in uh in police actions Um, but also taking a look at the policy, overarching policy, and then uh, a day-by-day look at the advance of the German army through Poland. So I was combining tactical operations with uh, personal history, with policy history, and um, I always wanted to get more inside the events. Um, And I think that that's true probably of anyone who studies history or reads history. They do it because they want to get inside what happened.
0: (laughs) Um,
3: And it dawned on me that there's really no way to do that writing from a historians perspective um, because you know you you have the overarching voice and you're analyzing movements and historical historiographical arguments and things like that so I really wanted to get inside the his inside the events themselves and because I had always been really interested in the Civil War um, and then moved to Western Maryland from Northern Virginia uh, in 2014 uh, met a woman who grew up in Sharpsburg and uh, and uh, we got married And so it just the inspiration of the story really struck me. It was I was like, boy, this is a really high drama. Um, This is is the highest stakes probably that this country's ever faced. Um, All really resting on this one battle that that ends up happening um, on Antietam Creek on September seventeenth. And so. That just the drama of the story, plus the personalities involved, really made me think. You know, maybe this is a good thing, good subject for um, diving into it and uh, looking at it from the inside out.
1: Well, it, a lot of historians would say the same thing as a motivation. Uh, that these are, there's no question. Antietam is, is a story of high drama, and it's one that many other people have tackled. Stephen Sears, probably a book that a lot of listeners have, have read. Uh, would be an example. So the question is, is though why why not approach it by uh, as you did with, with the uh, the Poland book, uh, finding historical characters using their letters, their diaries, and creating them as characters. What's the advantage of use of, of fictionalizing the, your story?
3: sure, um yeah, that's it's a good question, and um, I may still do that actually. <laughs> uh-huh. I still do work in history as well. um i wrote I write a number of essays, um actually more actively inter- active in the his- history field now than I have been in many years. Um, mm-hmm. but the thing that I noticed is that, um as I was looking through, I approached researching this book like I was researching any kind of book i would I would write as a history, so I looked mm-hmm. at all the primary sources I could and I put them into a, chrono- uh, into a chronology and weighed the veracity of one source versus another, et cetera, to try and make sure that it was as accurate as I could get it, um, get the story. And then I sat back and I looked. I realized, boy, there are some real gaps here on what we know. And the only way to really uh, access those gaps was to really explore them. And that's one of the things that I... I realized um, coming at things from the perspective of a novelist rather than coming at them from the perspective of a historian is that the historian deals with, facts, right? Bases everything on facts um, as far as possible, and then may uh, do some analysis and interpretation, which is where the speculation comes in about X movement or Y decision, etc. As a novelist, you come at it from the opposite direction, and this was really interesting intellectual exercise for me. You come at it from the idea of okay, well, we do know certain things, but there are a lot of things here we don't know. Like, we really don't know very much about what in the ordinary Confederate soldier did in the two days before Antietam. Um (laughs) we know that they're where they where they were posted. Um we can assume that they were out foraging for food, um and you know, there are assumptions and things like that. But again, those are generally assumptions, um as opposed to actually reading letters or knowing. Um there isn't a lot of detail out there or as much detail as I would have liked. Um mm-hmm. and then there are some major events, things like uh, Lee's decision to stand at Antietam. He never really vocalized um in a very any specific terms why he decided to fight that battle. Um, even though he was criticized for it afterward, um, mm-hmm. by men in his own army saying that he couldn't have ever hoped for anything more than a draw. Um I guess it was Edward Porter Alexander said that. And um so it well, struck me well, that
4: let there me step were a in lot here.
1: of we're going to take a short break and and sure. pick up on this this point of what Lee is thinking and others and and how a novelist how a historian approaches those things. Uh, that's right. part of our discussion tonight of the novel Six Days in September by our guest Alexander B. Rossino. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>
4: stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast
0: all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
2: psych up live with host dr suzanne phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective it's a look at what matters to us why do we laugh
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Alexander B. Rossino, author of Six Days in September, a novel of Lee's army in Maryland, 1862. And if you've been listening to the show any length of time, you know that uh, we normally don't do works of historical fiction. I wouldn't say never, it does happen. But usually not, uh, in part because uh, so many books come in or suggestions for books come in that, that uh, there's more than more books than there are slots on the show by a a long measure, and so this is one easy line to draw. But a deeper reason for me is that when I'm reading, I like to feel I'm uh, not just experiencing momentary entertainment, but I'm also learning something that I can use later in in the classroom, in my own writing, uh, just enriching my knowledge of the Civil War. A memorable scene in a novel that may or may not be accurate, that may be purely a figment to the writer's imagination, it takes up just as many brain cells as uh, a piece of nonfiction, and I don't have enough of those to spare. So I stay away from the fiction as a rule. Uh, but Alex, when you contacted me, you pointed out, or it became clear from a little research that you uh, had a background as a, a professional, as an academic historian. Uh, you were not simply someone who had read two or three books and says, oh, I can write one of those. Uh, yeah, you had right. some idea of you know how to handle sources um, mm-hmm. and that made me curious uh, why you know why turn to fiction as we were talking about a minute ago um, l- let me ask in the same vein so how far from the sources do you stray how much invention did you find necessary to make the work workable right yeah it's a good question um, so I don't I
3: try to st- stay with the sources as closely as possible. Um, mm-hmm. However, as we were talking before the break about gaps in the, in the right. material, um, it required me to, um, when you're telling the story and you're trying to tell it as a continuous narrative, especially when you narrow it down to a real small period or a short period like six days that I am, um, there are times where i couldn't I didn't know exactly what was happening. Um, so the um, the fiction part really comes in where I'm trying to fill in the gaps that I could for information I couldn't find in the history, and I'll give you a real distinct example. so okay. On September 14th, um, at about 8.30 in the evening, um, Thomas Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, down at Harper's Ferry, uh, he writes Lee, a dispatch that says, uh, General, I expect, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, I expect Harper's Ferry to capitulate tomorrow. Um, where do you want me to go uh, after after this happens, or what, what are your orders from here? And this dispatch doesn't reach Lee in maryland uh at that time it reaches him in kiddiesville until say around eight o'clock the following morning now this is a 17 mile trip it takes about four hours by horse uh to you know to make the trip but yet it doesn't make it there until the next morning almost 12 hours later so we have no idea why that is Uh, It simply is, and so it's one of those things where in the story, what I go into is I go into an analysis of what was probably happening at the time, and what was happening is that uh, an 1,800-man cavalry formation that had broken out of Harper's Ferry uh, and took the Maryland side of the river all the way up to Sharpsburg and then up to Williamsport, where they ended up capturing something like 54 of uh, Longstreet's ammunition wagons, they must have been in the way. At Sharpsburg, we don't have any evidence for this, but it's the direct route that they would have had to take, in. and there is a big spring uh, called the Big Spring in Sharpsburg, <laughs> incidentally, where it would have been a perfect place right off the Harper's Ferry road for uh, watering your horses after uh, after a hard ride. So um, it made sense to me that well, the dispatch obviously got um, it; it ended up being delayed by the fact that there's federal cavalry cavalry in the way. Um, awesome. trying to reach Lee when he's farther east than, than Sharpsburg, but we don't have any evidence for that. So I ended up having to write it in the story as um, the courier being sent by Jackson. Um, and that's where sort of the fictional parts come in. So I'd say that, you know, 80 percent of what you read in the book is based on the facts. Um, it's just that those little details and those indiv- those some of those um, episodes where i didn't have the information or I ended yes. up having to make something um, up or or deduce you know basically what the situation would have been and write it up as part of the story so that's where the novel part comes in.
1: Now um, when people think of civil war novels the uh certainly the one most of us have read. Uh, it has to be The Killer Angels, uh, Michael Shara's right. book. Uh, that, that was incredibly influential. It was a big deal when it came out. I was an undergrad at the time, and I remember the historians at University of Michigan and the department talking about it. And uh, It was a new way to look at the Gettysburg campaign through an, uh, a novelist's imaginative vision, but still staying close to the... Uh, uh, to the source material, mm-hmm. it, it, certainly that 's reflected uh, as I was reading your book i I guess I would ask, is this the, the, meant to be the killer angels of antietam it 's funny because um, I originally set out to do that to
3: write the Killer mm-hmm. Angels of Antietam because I think that Antietam doesn 't get the uh, attention that it needs or that it deserves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in many ways it was the actual turning point of the war rather than Gettysburg, and that it could have, um, if we had won there... I know it's a long shot, given the size of his army and depleted sources and stuff like resources and things like that. But if he had been able to win there, there's a good chance that we would be in two different countries right now. If you were in South Carolina and I'm uh, or North Car, is it East Carolina? I don't remember exactly where that is, where that's located. But in the Carolinas, Greenville, North Carolina, <laughs> Greenville, North Carolina, right. Um, right? And you know, and me being up here in a border state in Maryland, so <laughs> um, it potentially could have been. You know, we could be in two different nations. So. Sure. Uh, I've always thought that, you know, Antietam really deserved, and this is part another reason for writing a novel, is that as historians and as writers in general, we face a real headwind in the fact that the read the public the reading public is growing older and smaller um Mm -hmm. and so you know you want to try and write something that people are going to read and that will reach the largest number of people as possible and there are a lot of people who don't want to read you know an 800 page history that's got a bunch of footnotes they want to read a story that flows and tells the story and they learn something from it uh so i figured i'd try and hit all the check all the boxes
1: (laughs) well that's um Another question I wanted to ask, uh, let me hold on that and stay with Killer Angels for a minute. Um, One of the obvious differences, that book looks inside the heads of major characters on both sides of the line. You focus Mm -hmm. exclusively on the Confederate side, which I thought was a strength. Uh, It it wasn't an obvious copy of of Shara's structure, for example. And, uh, uh, you know, there were a few characters and and we got to know them and and, uh, they were relatively... Convincing portraits. Were there other influences in terms of Civil War fiction uh, that, that that you th- that helped shape what you wrote?
3: Um, well, yeah. I mean, there were there were, well, maybe not in terms of Civil War fiction, but I mean, I'm a big fan of Shelby Foote. I think I've read his three Is volume it? series. Three or four times, and as you well know, there are places in that series that are um, that read like a novel, Uh, so he definitely um, influenced me. Uh, I've read a couple of Howard Barr's books as well and Mm -hmm. uh, sent him this manuscript, which I found very interesting the responses I got back from him versus sending getting back from James McPherson or Scott Hartwig, um, where Barr said, Well, this is way too much like a history to be a novel <laughs> <laughs> and then I would get back from the story and it's way too much like a novel to be history. So, um, you know, I, I figured I was in that sweet spot then if once I was getting that kind of response from both different, both sides. <laughs> and incidentally that, that, I was assigned killer angels too in my American civil war class when I was an undergrad and I looked at it <laughs> and went, this is a history class. Why are we reading this fiction? <laughs> so i I'm guilty of the same kind of
1: bias. <laughs> well, it, it's an important, Question: You know, how, to, to what extent can fiction be a tool? And and you know, since the the postmodern turn for 20 25 years, people have argued that history is itself history is just another form of fiction. That that we weren't there. Yeah. We can't uh, mm-hmm. even if we were there. We can't capture the past on paper. Even events you you were part of your in your own life can't be recreated in the form of text. So. Uh, We can only put these marks on paper that convey information or or ideas to our readers, and that that it's all uh, simply a different form of fiction. I'm not sure I would go that far myself, but uh, I I imagine you've heard that argument. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It
3: starts with H.L. Mencken, the historian, failed novelist. (laughs) That's what he called us.
1: (laughs) That that does work. Um, (laughs) <laughs> what about Am- Ambrose Bierce? um there there there's a one glimmer of a, an event that reminded me of the occurrence at owl creek bridge uh, mm-hmm. th- w- was that a conscious uh, homage or was that the the bit where the the soldier's waking up he's having a dream and uh sees his wife uh, coming toward him and then right right Sergeant yeah, smacks you know, him, I,
3: if it if it was it was unconscious um, because I read Beers as an undergrad and mm-hmm. haven't gone back. So um, it must've been something that I, I picked up along the way. It was just some, some, a moment of inspiration that, uh, that grabbed Listen.
1: me. That's one of those questions that authors hear that, that uh, historians fear in terms of plagiarism, like, Oh my goodness, I read something 20 years ago. And then I say, you know, it comes out in my own writing right? Uh, and you, you worry, and, but, but, all, we're all products of, of the sources that we've read. Uh, it's bound to happen. Well, let me go back to the the the, the question about um, you, you got feedback that this was too much history to be a novel or too much novel to be a history. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you've got chocolate in my peanut butter here, apparently, uh, <laughs> or vice versa. Uh, so who is... You said the book is intended to reach a wide audience, but if it's aimed at people who listen to this show, everyone listening knows who won the Battle of Antietam. The 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 suspense isn't there. Um, If it's for people who don't know who won the Battle of Antietam, then maybe it is too much history to have a little side detail on why Confederate fuses don't work as well as Union fuses, artillery fuses. Is it is it possible? It's it's too much for one, not enough for the other. Maybe, although I'd
3: say that the the feedback I've received is really quite been quite good, and that's from people good. who don't read read a lot of history. Um, I have people come up to me when I do my uh, book signings or I do talks. Um, who said, you know, I've, I wanted to come and hear you because I've already read your book and uh, I found it really, really interesting and really good. And the part of the feedback that I get is that um, the way that I wrote it, um, which is from the perspective of the participants in these events, um, mm-hmm. is intended to have those events unfold in front of you. So um, you don't actually, even though you know that the Confederate Army loses the Battle of Antietam, And you know, you know, certain may know certain things about what happens tactically on the field, it still um, comes at you in a way that, um, and this is from feedback I'm getting, uh, it still (laughs) comes at at readers in a way that um, allows them to get into the events and actually not understand or know what's going on entirely until it's actually over. So um, I had a colleague, um, John Michael Priest, uh, actually tell me oh, once, yes. he said, boy, you know, um, he read this and he really liked it. And, and he said, boy, you know, um, uh, you can almost feel how alone Lee is when he makes this decision and how he's, he's just racked with this anxiety about the fact that he's got to fight a larger army when his army's depleted and things. And, and I felt, well, boy, you know, I, I, I may have actually accomplished my goal to really help people to get inside Lee's head and to understand what he was going through at the time um, so that he could, you know, so that you could experience things maybe a little bit closer or maybe a little bit different than you had if you've read Landscape Turned Red or, you know, any of the other books.
1: Oh, my priest book, uh, the, about the soldiers' battle, is certainly one that a lot of listeners have read. The, um, there is something about the voice in this book where, it's clear that you you know what you're talking about, obviously, or, or we wouldn't be discussing it here on this show, uh, it, but you know what you're talking about, and the the details that we can check on ring true, and, and the the courier being delayed coming from Jackson to Lee by the interposition of the Union cavalry that escaped from Harper's Ferry makes perfect sense. It does. It's consistent with everything we know. It, it may or may not have happened just as you described, but it's... I didn't see any red flags popping up as I was reading it. There were none of those moments that shake the suspension of disbelief and make you say, "Well, he's, now he's just making stuff up, um, right?" Uh, which is then seduces the reader into wanting to believe uh, that the story of these these two or three typical uh, uh, infantrymen uh, mm-hmm. uh, are, are true stories. Also, were those were the the, the foot soldiers? names you got from a roster? Do you know anything actual about them, or are they entire, are they composites? Sure. So the only purely fictional character in this book
3: is Gilbert Farney, uh, who is one of the men with the Sixth Alabama, uh, the major character that I follow, the ordinary, and I call him a character because he's Mm -hmm. the only character really in the book. The rest are personalities. Mm -hmm. The other um, two of his, uh, his comrades in that regiment um pat cannon and um billy week dennis uh they appear on the roster of the sixth alabama um, I do know that they seem to have survived, or at least there is no mention that they were shot or killed at um, at uh, Antietam. Um, but I also don't have any idea what ended up happening to them. Um, mm-hmm. I chose, you know, the Sixth Alabama because of its critical position on the Confederate line on the 17th, when um, they were the regiment that uh, you know John Brown Gordon commanded when he was shot five times that day, and mm-hmm. they are the regiment that gets the 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 order to uh about face or to turn to to turn so that they can uh, they can uh defend against um Yankee soldiers that are firing on them from the right over their shoulders after Anderson's men collapse on part of the sunken road. And uh, then they fall apart because they the order they misinterpret the orders and they've been fighting mm-hmm. for three hours. And so the line, Lee's line in the center there falls apart. So um, I picked them really for uh, their position there and also their position on South Mountain. And that's kind of a hat tip to Michael Shara um, mm-hmm. because they're on the far left of the Confederate line. Um, Uh, defending against a much larger force. Um, Unfortunately for them, (laughs) things didn't quite go as well as they did for the 20th Maine. Um, But that's what happens when you're a single regiment
1: facing an entire brigade. (laughs) it's, It's not a good day for them, for sure. Well, we'll take another short break now, come back and talk more with our guest, Alex Rossino, author of Six Days in September, a novel of Lee's Army in Maryland, 1862. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Attention.
2: Attention.
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Alexander B. Rossino, author of Six Days in September, a novel of Lee's Army in Maryland, 1862. Uh, we've been talking about the the lines between history and uh, uh, fiction. And as I was reading this, I was reminded of a quote from uh, J.R.R. R. Tolkien in his essay on fairy stories. He, he wrote that he hated when adults would uh, try to make science interesting by comparing you know, real dinosaurs to fantasy dragons. Uh, he wrote as if to, uh, quote... Assume that by some kind of original sin I should prefer fairy tales, but according to some kind of new religion I ought to be induced to like science. Uh, Which he says he likes science anyway. So is, is this, you know, by some original sin we all like novels, but if we do it right, we can, you know, hide the medicine, put the footnotes away, we can trick people into liking history. Um, is like, that is any of that going on here?
3: Um, there are some things that, um, are, I wouldn't say they're direct quotes necessarily, but there's times when I tried to use the language that was used in the sources. Um, especially if there was something that Lee had said, um, that you know was well, uh, well recorded, um, or, you know, was something that we know that was a, was a quote from a certain source or not. Um, and you know, the important thing for me really was to make it flow, to make the dialogue mm-hmm. flow. And, of course, that was the, the biggest challenge um, as a historian. You know, writing dialogue is, uh, is, is really a, um, a task. I actually got through the first four chapters of the manuscript uh, before I realized that uh, it wasn't sounding the way I wanted it to, and I ended up throwing it out um, the first mm. four chapters and then re- rewriting the whole thing. Um, so there are some, there, there are definitely, I could footnote the thing if I wanted. I could have footnoted the book if I wanted, but um, mm-hmm. I, you know, it was supposed to be a novel. And actually when I spoke with, uh, when I finally submitted it to uh, Ted Savas over at Savas Beatty, um, I did have a few footnotes in there occasionally just to explain mm-hmm. a certain thing. Um, and Ted came back and said, no, no, there shouldn't be. There shouldn't be any footnotes here.
1: So um, part of it's my publisher. <laughs> well, I, I think he's right. I think you, you want to go one way or the other. I, I, right. I, at the very end, you've got a like a two-page sort of historical summary of the campaign. And, and to be frank, I thought, you know, uh, you've already told us this. Uh, you're you're trying, to, trying to do both things. trying to have it both ways. There's a historical summary. Uh, to go with the novel and and i I thought the novel stood on its own um but I want to ask you a different question um about Lee Lee is a main character certainly he, he he's central to the novel uh his decision making about his anguish for his army and then decision of what to do uh dominates this and it and it is a a a compelling portrait it, well at times I was Trying to discern the the detachment between author and character, um, the the character, you know, refers unironically to the Southern cause. Uh, the the his slaves are described as servants, using the language of the time that uh, was more genteel to call your. Your, your enslaved laborers, servants instead of slaves. Right. Uh, so that's right. the language that Lee and, and the people around him use. Uh, sometimes that that word will slip into the narration, uh, the omniscient narrator's voice. Uh, it is. It, it, what? How? How did you tackle that task of, of presenting Lee in his time supporting what? Uh, you know what? What U.S. Grant said in his memoirs, paraphrasing: "You know, there was never a braver army, or one that fought for a worse cause." Um, mm-hmm. Right. How, how did right. you address that?
3: Yeah, so it, there's the sticky wicket, right? Um, yeah. And that that's something that I I realized that I I could only address if I was just brutally honest about it, and um, wanted to make sure that I covered uh, it as part of the motivation for um, certain soldiers, uh, but the context that they lived in as well. Um, And I also tried to use language, you'll notice that some of the spellings of towns like Boonesboro is spelled Mm -hmm. not with uh, B-O-R-O at the end, but actually the old style. I tried to make it, I wanted it to be atmospheric too, um, so that the reader would be drawn into the way that the characters the personalities I should say, the, the way the personalities looked at things at the time, um, so that there was really no feeling of separation between the reader and when they were when they were and the personality when they were going you know going through it um, so I, I I dealt with the subject of. Um, slavery in a number of different ways. Um, one is to uh, have um, this character, Franklin Turner. Uh, he joined Stonewall Jackson's uh, command um, at Harper's Ferry. Uh, he knows Kid Douglas and, and Franklin Turner. By the way, is a real was a real person. Uh, he's buried in Sem- on Cemetery Hill at the Mountain View Cemetery across the, the street from um, the uh, National Cemetery in Sharpsburg. Um, and he did his the the priest who's in the the book as well. John Alexander Adams was his uncle, and that's that stuff is all primary research that I ended up doing in Sharpsburg and uh, learned all those things. Um, but. You know some of the men who Turner is is put in with, um, he uh, is confronted by the fact that they are diehard you know they are diehard pro-slavery advocates, and Uh um, that they even named their troop uh, the Black Horse Troop after um, with specific reference to the color, um, Uh uh, so that because it expressed what they were fighting for. Uh, And also, Turner um, himself—he was part of this. He was voted for secession at the secession convention, Virginia's secession convention—and so I had to try and figure out a way to um, have him voice, because he has lawyer training, went to Franklin and Marshall, got his law degree there, just like Kid Douglas. Um, Had to have him express the uh, the sort of political views of the time um how you know lincoln must have been an abolitionist there was no way other to look at him than that and that um you know if the northern people wanted to uh, live with um with blacks in their midst as equals then they're perfectly welcome to do so but that's not the way we do things down here um so i wanted to be you know as honest as i could about the in about the issue and how different people may have looked at it in different ways. You know, Lee, of course, is a lot more genteel about it. So you'll have Longstreet asking him his, mm-hmm. for his, if he could get a cup of water from his man, um, yeah. and Lee calling him, you know, the, these men servants as opposed to slaves. Right. Um, so you know, I tried to do, a, tried to capture a variety of different
1: approaches. It, it, I think, it's one of the the risks with fiction because. It, if you're writing a peer-reviewed historical manuscript, there's little chance that the author is going to go off on a lost cause tangent uh, that that's, it's hard to find, I'd say impossible to find a reputable. Historian who would adopt a 19th century lost cause view today. Uh, sure. But you can find plenty of such people in in the general public who have been raised on that and and still believe it. Uh, and some of them can write novels. You don't need a license to write a novel. Uh, you don't need a PhD right. to write a novel. So right, I, I I will say in the first 20 pages, I was there were times I was going, okay, I don't know, Alex, is is this him talking? Is this I mean, I know these are his, your people talking, your characters talking, but I'm n- I am don't know what the author behind the characters thinks. By the time you finish a novel, you realize, oh, yeah, he's putting 19th century voices in their mouths and having them say the things at that time. He knows what he's, he's... hes It's quite clear, you know, you're not espousing the, the lost cause view that the characters are. Oh, absolutely it's not. not even a lost no, cause, no. obviously not. But it... You see what I'm saying? With fiction, there's no ga- there's no gatekeeper, there's no peer review to make sure right. I'm not reading a crazy book here, am I? Uh, <laughs> and and after you know, and, and Ted Savage isn't going to publish a crazy book either. Uh, but it is a difference that you don't experience with with peer-reviewed history. You don't have to, you know someone's already at least put it in the middle, put it in a certain place. Uh, but has made sure that they that the the crazy people have not gotten in, um, and 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 your book obviously survives that. So it's just something that the reader uh, you wouldn't be on the show if I thought this was a crazy book. So uh, listeners uh, feel free to read this book with confidence and enjoy it for what it is. Uh, we've just got a short time left, but I wanted to ask about um, uh, Longstreet. Uh, Killer mm-hmm. Angels portrays Longstreet as the the savant who tries to keep Lee from making a great mistake, and Longstreet is the, the you know the Cassandra, the one who knows what's going to happen, but nobody listens to him. Uh, your right. Longstreet is is kind of the same way. Lee, don't do this, but this time Lee's right and Longstreet's wrong.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, you know, that was one of the things that I noticed as I was going, as I was doing the research and really delving mm-hmm. into the Maryland campaign, was that there already the cracks in the relationship, or the tension between uh, Longstreet's, um, like you said, Cassandra-like uh, defensive um, stand uh, or his opinion on how battles should be fought versus Lee's more aggressive um, uh, approach, uh, that was all, Those were already appearing in in uh, September of, of uh, 1862. So, um, you know, what happens, it's no surprise then what happens at Gettysburg, you know, mm-hmm. nine months later, um, because, or 10 months later, because it's already there. Um, and I wanted that to be uh, obvious too, to readers who were more familiar with the Civil War. I'm trying to appeal, and maybe, you know, bit off, I don't, wouldn't say that I bit off too more than I could chew here, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to appeal to, you know, like you said, a general audience, who doesn't really read much history and may not know much of this stuff, but also to historians who do know um, mm-hmm. what happened and are familiar with these issues and can read it and go, oh, yeah, that, I, I, I know this. This rings true to me. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to get endorsements by historians, too. You'll notice that three out of the four people who endorse yes. – the book on the back, James McPherson, Scott Hartwig, and Tom Clemens um, are all you know, reputable historians, Civil War historians. So I wanted to make sure that I had to, you know, had their cred behind me. <laughs> that that, that, it, it,
1: it, it's not a small point. I mean, again, I, I, people send me novels and say, oh, but I researched it for years, so it's really authentic. Uh, mm-hmm. well, I'm sure you have, sir, but it doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to read your 1,000-page manuscript on the chance it might Teach me something. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Having Jim McPherson on the back of the book, Scott Hartwig, Tom Clemens, that did help assure me I'm not wasting my time reading this. Or wasting's not the right word. I'm not simply being entertained. I might. I'm engaging with a historian who who takes the sources seriously and knows how to work with them and is not going to simply you know, read a few books and then put out some ideas. Another thing that, that adds to that are the maps. There are only a few maps in the book, but they're very good. And they, mm-hmm. they help clarify what you're talking about and show what happened at South Mountain, what happened at Antietam. Uh, it, it, again, it's another, something that South Beatty book would be likely to have, so it, so it works. Um, in just 30 seconds, uh, let me put you on the Civil War time machine and ask if you could go back, uh, to the Civil War era for 30 minutes, talk to whoever you want, and come back safely. Uh, having done this research, uh, who would you want to talk to? I, I would definitely want to talk to Robert Ely. I, I would want to know
3: what he was thinking um, as he decided to approach this battle. Um, and maybe if I could have a conference with him and Jackson about uh, why they decided that they weren't going to build any fortifications or, uh, you know, breastworks to try and uh, meet the
1: the federal onslaught. <laughs> I would
3: would definitely ask that question.
1: (laughs) Definitely a good one. Um, And and final question, Next, next project. Are you going to write anything else like this? Yeah, so actually there's a second book coming out called Six
3: Days in September, but this is a novel of McClellan's army. So uh-huh. it takes it take it's just the same approach um to McClellan's mm-hmm. army as Lee's army. Um you mentioned earlier that you liked the approach or you thought it was effective um to just stick with the Confederate side of the story yes. and I did that on purpose because I wanted the continuity in the story so that you could follow mm-hmm. it and not have to bounce back and forth between side to side. Again another right. difference from history. Um and I so I did the same thing with McClellan and um the manuscript's actually out right now with readers, so um hoping for feedback soon and I think Ted Savas wants to have it out by September of 2019.
1: Well, I hope that works well. Uh, certainly good luck with that and good luck with this book. It was Thank you so uh, much. an entertaining and stimulating read. Six Days in September, a novel of Lee's Army in Maryland, 1862. The author is Alexander B. Rossino. Alex, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. And thanks a lot for having me, Jerry. I really appreciate it. And listeners, as always...